Hello, you're listening to Shut Up and Watch This, episode number 96. I'm Dave. I'm Ashley. We are a couple in Austin, Texas, getting to know each other better by uncovering each other's movie and pop culture blind spots. Each episode, one of us gets to choose something, a movie, a TV show. Usually a movie. A rock opera. Rock. Copra. Cop rock. No. No. Um, (laughs) That the other person has never (laughs) encountered before. Most of the time. We've broken the rules a few times. And then uh, we watch the film together. Mm -hmm. And then we unpack it all here for you. This is, like I said, 96 episodes in. Yes. We've unpacked a lot here. 96 we've, we've things, at least. Many of well, our plus the two many important episodes. and seminal works for, mm. yes, to each other. So it was my turn this time. You, you, caught, you got to call it last time. We did oh, a certified did. copy. It was my turn last time. And so <laughs> <laughs> this time um, you left it up to me. So I picked, it's only uh, the second Fellini movie we've ever covered on the podcast. Yes. Episode number 42. Was eight and a half? Was eight and a half. Eight and a half, okay. And now episode number 96 is La Dolce Vita. Okay. From 1960, starring again, Marcello Mastriani. This was his first movie with Fellini. Okay. Before he became a kind of alter ego, like in many of his movies. Um, Yeah. uh, I think... Eight and a half would have been the one after like this. Like the French guy and... Um, uh, Truffaut's movies yeah. uh, with... Um, oh, God. You know, the French guy. Jean-Pierre Léaud. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> who's the little boy in 400 Blows, mm-hmm. who grows up to be a, a womanizing uh, middle-aged man. Yeah. In, in the disappointing... I was going to say, as we all do? The no. dis- <laughs> I don't think I did. <laughs> you don't think. But then again, I'm... Don't, I'm not in France in mm. the 1960s. They seem to have a different uh, approach to things. Yeah. At remember, least in the, we, the artistic Well, we covered set. one of those. Uh, we did Stolen Kisses. Yeah. On, and that was when he was in his 20s and uh, working in a shoe store and uh, having an affair with the boss's wife or something like that. So anyway. Yeah. Okay. So Ask me anything. <laughs> When did you first see this movie, Dave? (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked. We have not outlined this. Uh, Can you tell? Yeah. Um, I think I saw it for the first time as a teenager. Mm. Um, As as you do. Everybody remembers the first time they saw a Fellini film when they were 14, 15 years old. Uh, uh, Rented a tape, saw La Dolce Vida. I was trying to see all the great movies, and I... uh, Really liked the French New Wave and Fellini and Kurosawa. Mm. Those were the and we've covered all of these guys yeah. at one point or another, I think, in some way. So um, I think this was probably the second or third Fellini movie I had ever seen. You asked me the other day what what was the first one I saw. What and was I your first Fellini? It was probably <laughs> La Strada, which is much mm. more a neo realist. Mm. You know downtrodden slice of life sort of thing before this period before he ends up going into this period where which uh, ramping up the surrealism. ramping up the surrealism and the dream sequences and we don't really have much of that in this movie but i guess it's kind of a it's transition film. it's it's happened it's starting to happen so. there's something about the tone of the movie i think that's sometimes exaggerated in a in a way that mm. starts that will eventually head into the more outlandish kinds of things yeah. that Fellini ends up doing later. Anyway, I mean I can't believe you've never seen it. Yeah. 
<laughs> had you seen any Fellini movies before me? Or have you seen... No, have... I saw Kabiria with... <laughs> this is the joke that would be... With my former Dave. Um... <laughs> There was you, there was an involvement with another film aficionado. Yes, um, uh, whose name was not Dave, but yeah. um, my previous Dave. It's uh, my ex-wife who has a new Dave. Yes, you're my current wife, and you don't have an old Dave. I'm your current wife, <laughs> which is another joke we've been throwing around lately. Uh, <laughs> I'm also your current Dave, and my current Dave. Um, yeah, so I had seen Knights of Kiberia that. Um, we watched some night and I really enjoyed that. Um, I can't remember if I saw it in the theater. I think we rented it and watched it at home actually. Um, and I don't know. I just never got around to it. I haven't seen a lot of Italian. Um, I've actually seen much more Italian horror films than, um, um, I've seen a lot of the great black and white sort of, 50s and 60s like these, horror like, films. Mario Bava movies. Uh, they're amazing. I've they're never so seen beautiful. These. How come you've never brought one of these on for I the just, show? I don't know. I guess I don't know what they're called. I just like I put them oh, on, and they're 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 so the photography is so beautiful. Look them up because you know yeah. if this is a this is a podcast about blind spots. I haven't yeah. seen any of that stuff. I've seen one Dario Argento movie. I've never mm. seen any of those like black and white 60s 50s. Well, we watched Suspiria, but that one's not black and white. But. Um, yeah, that's the one I've seen. Yeah, so but I just had not seen. I've seen like um, the one about the guy and the dog. No, I don't know anything about this. I'm telling you. No, oh, no, no. Oh, I'm oh. saying the neorealist film. Uh, oh God, that wouldn't it be weird if Umberto D was a, like, a really D, bloody like <laughs> no, Italian no, 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 horror I, film? I was. I just. I hadn't seen many of those, and then I did. Oh, you've see, seen Bicycle Thieves. I've seen though. Bicycle Thieves. Yeah. So who among us can say that they haven't? Or seen? or you know, Bicycle Thief, depending. <laughs> it's funny you say that because when I was growing up in my day, we called it the bicycle, the bicycle thief. For years, yeah. it was the bicycle That's thief. That's what in the then, sight and sound. I think it was a British thing. I think the title card says it said the bicycle bicycle thief, thief, and then at some point, uh, maybe it was the Criterion and uh, Janice films decided that it's more accurately bicycle thieves. There were multiple thieves, so yeah, (laughs) at least two that we know of. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Both films by De Sica, Vittorio De Sica, Umberto D, and uh, and like I did watch um, um, Marty, as I like to call him. had a, a PBS um, oh, special that he did in My Voyage to Italy. My or, Voyage to Italy. And so I did watch that. So I did sort of have an idea. And that's actually when I watched Umberto D was out of that. Um, but I haven't... I, I never made it to Fellini for one reason or the another. The fact that I met you and you had already seen and knew and loved like Umberto D and Cabiria yeah. and stuff like that was like a sign to me. Yeah. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> That's Umberto D is kind of obscure. I mean, like I don't in my normal wanderings encounter like I I don't have conversations about Umberto D very often. I must have I don't know. I must sometimes I you know, the way I was moving through film was like by director. Yeah. You know, so it was probably like and and we used to have this fantastic, you know, R.I.P. Vulcan video um that had the director's wall. So you could go to the director's wall and see all the films by De Sica and then pick up a few, um, which is not usually how people, I, I don't know, I, I guess not usually how people discover film, but um, that was how I was working through it. And 
And I guess it, it started with, you know, I, I've talked about how I've always been a big Ang Lee fa- fan, and he was the first sort of director that I really kind of liked, you know, what he was choosing and the style that he was directing in. And um, so he, so that was kind of how I got into looking at individual directors, you know. So uh, it's interesting. It's, my My interest in film has sort of grown very organically. It was never like... A specific thing like I like movies you know or mm-hmm. I like films or whatever it was just like there's some interesting stories being told and you know I want to see them <laughs> I honestly can't remember how I got specifically into like international cinema and no. like European film but mm-hmm. like when I stumbled on the 60s yeah like I felt really hard for that. Like that was like my first big obsession where like was Jean-Luc Godard Mm. and Fellini and Truffaut and um, that whole, all of that stuff. A lot of it French New Wave. Oh, and Ingmar Bergman. Yeah. So like, (laughs) and I was a kid who loved the movies. I don't know how I got into that stuff though. I think I just lived in San Francisco and I tried something or, you know, it's like all, there was this like conjunction of things at the same time. I moved to within walking distance to the Castro Theater, which was one of the great rep theaters of the mm. world. I've talked about it a lot on this show before. And um, around that time, Bravo was a new channel and mm. they specialized in showing um, art films and like, you know, classic foreign films and stuff like that. So I saw a lot of my porn film. No, foreign films. It always <laughs> sounds like, doesn't it always sound like? Um, so I know I saw a lot of my first... Some oh, it's of like these. The, the tapas bars. And then on top of that, on top of that, we had the like world. One of the world's greatest video stores at the time was that one by the Golden Gate Park, mm. La Video, which is now a Green Apple Books. It's, yeah, annex. it's an annex of the yeah. Green Apple Books now. Um, but they had everything. And then I also lived right next to San Francisco State, so when I got interested in something. I'm a librarian now, but I used to haunt the sixth floor. (laughs) Like, you know, when I was a teenager, I'd go up and go through and like find books on Fellini and stuff like that. So Fellini was probably one of my first like, oh, my God, this is really weird and unusual. And I want to see more of his films. And I I assume I think it was probably because I saw eight and a half for either like maybe my second film first or second film of his and I was like what I've never seen anything with these kinds of dream sequences and mm. just this this strange atmosphere and all I don't, I don't know what it was. <laughs> so that's when I saw this for the first time and then it's taken you know it took another 10 years to kind of work my way through major Fellini movies and you know I went to I end up going to film school yeah and I come back to San Francisco and, and then they run a retrospective of like all of Fellini's films at the Castro again yeah um, so then I go see a bunch more <laughs> of them I see um, Amarcord for the first time and I see Juliet of the Spirits for the first time but I always go back to like I would say the big three for me, are La Strada, La Dolce Vita, and Eight and a Half. And now I would say the big four because I've now seen Kiberia, Knights mm. of Kiberia, three or four times probably. And and I don't think I saw that one early on before. It probably would have been up there because I really yeah. like neorealist stuff. But anyway, I just remember like because Fellini was like a name, like such a big director in yeah. the 70s and the 80s, like 
there were like, like I could go to the library or the bookstore and find, you know, five or six books on Fellini. And, yeah. and at that time when you couldn't easily, even with VHS, you know, you still have to find a copy of the tape or whatever. Like I could check out the script or with all the film stills in it or, and read little essays and read, you know, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to piece together now how it all happened, but yeah. I saw this when I was really young and now here I am, I'm 51 years old. It's like you reverse the numbers, right? I was 15. I yeah. saw La Dolce Vita. Now I'm 51. It's like probably makes a little more hey, sense now. Yeah. Well, I've gone from you know I I, I was a, a a kid like marveling at what 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 is all this this mm. crazy life and to you know now I'm Steiner. No, I'm not Steiner. Um, <laughs> I'm also not Marcello Mastro. I think you should say that to me. <laughs> no, I'm not Steiner. <laughs> but I have had some. I'm scotch. not taking any bus trips anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird so, it's yeah, come up I mean, a number like, of times the seeing a movie when I was yet when I was an adolescent and then like coming back to it yeah it's it's years later very different I, I think it's a good idea to like especially your favorite pieces of of things or just like weird stuff that stick in your brain just re-watching it every you know every decade or so just to see how your perspective has changed you know, so it's interesting to me because, like, I've always been aware of this is, like, a big movie in the world. You know, just like I was aware of Eight and a Half being a big movie that I just hadn't seen, you know. So, um, it's interesting. It's a little more um, bleak than I was expecting, <laughs> I think, you know. The sweet life. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was going to be. It's all fun and parties. I mean, like, I knew that there was going to explore the sort of hollowness at the heart of this sort of wealth and privilege and this society that's essentially escaping the horrors of war that just happened to them, you know, by, you know, drinking too much and... and Excess. Excess, you know, um, which, you know, is, I think, hit all of of the Western world after World War II. It just was such a horrible time, you know, um, that people you know, that could afford to would were engaging in all sorts of escapist behavior, well, you know. But I didn't I didn't think it was gonna be quite as biting as it is. It's pretty It's even more I'm it's even more biting even though I've seen it half yeah. a dozen times, if not more, yeah. <laughs> over the years. I didn't remember how bleak and biting it is because in my mind, like, I think what attracted me to it when I was younger and what still is like, I immediately think of, like everyone does, I think of, you know, Marcello and Anita Ekberg, like in the Trevi Fountain and like that whole, like, you know, these, just this like life exploding across the screen with the the music and the nightclubs and and all of that i mean that's like so iconic some some of those scenes and like that's i still love that stuff but it's like you have to pay for that yeah (laughs) by by (laughs) dealing with the whole film you know and where it ends up going well it's it's interesting to me because like there i don't think there's a scene in the movie where it's just exploring this sort of exuberant way of living because there's always like these bored guys sitting 
at the side that are just kind of like bored and over this. Like every single scene, even the scene with the fountain, there's like guys sitting over at a table while this woman's dancing around and they're just kind of like sipping their cocktails and smoking and seeming sort of like over you know, this sort of exuberant expression. And it's four in the morning and everybody's wasted and yeah. all that kind of thing too. <laughs> yeah. Know? So we should say something about what the movie's about for anybody who hasn't seen it or hasn't thought about it for a long time. Well, I mean, it's hard. I mean, like, what it's about, it's different than, I guess, what happens in the movie. Well, let's but, you know, get, but, what is but it about a, on the who, surface? Who it's about, maybe. Who, who and what is... Well, so our, our, I guess, our point of view character is Marcello... Mm-hmm. Um, who is a journalist. Yeah, he's a tabloid journalist. Yeah, he's like Perez Hilton or something like that. He's a gossip columnist. Yeah, he's he... a gas col- gossip columnist. There's probably a more elegant example, but that's what I could think of off the top of my head. But, I uh, can't remember if he's actually based on anyone specific, but it's a type. But he also, I mean, like, he he is supposed to, I think, like, be reporting on and judging these people, but he really wants to... He, like, really participates and gets involved in, um, you know, in in the lives of these people that he's supposed to be reporting on. And, like, I guess it's clear from the first scene that some people are irritated by him, but a lot of them just let him hang on and go to their parties and hang out at their events. And So I think at the point we yeah. join, like, we catch up with him in the movie, he's already gone from he's already well into being more than a spectator and a, yeah. and a journalist, but you can see how it started with him being more of an observer, mm-hmm. like writing the stories. And this was a thing where I was reading about where these gossip columnists and in, in, would haunt the Via Veneto, you know, mm-hmm. and all of these clubs and outdoor sidewalk cafes and stuff. And they would often work in tandem with the paparazzi, um, yeah. with a photographer, that, you know, and they would set somebody up. I mean, they would go and try and see who's with who and who's, you know, who's ha- who's in an illicit affair situation <laughs> out with somebody they shouldn't be. And then, like, they would set some kind of confrontation up and, and get the pictures. And then if it turned into a fight or an argument or something, things being thrown, then all the better was going yeah. to sell more <laughs> papers, you know. But, like, that's that was part of the inspiration for the movie was mm. Fellini... I had met uh, one of those photographers and he was like, oh, I want to do like, I want to do this kind of journalist and photographer thing. Well, what's interesting is, you know, he's supposed to be a journalist. You never see him writing. You never see him taking notes, I don't think. Maybe at the religious, when, when the children see the Madonna, maybe he takes some notes. He has his photographer, Paparato, who yeah. had, but, like, they have a weird thing where he's, like, sometimes, like, he's telling him what to do and the rest of the time he's telling him to go away and trying to avoid him. Well, because he's, as you said, he's yeah. becoming a participant mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. And I think that the movie is the story of him becoming so immersed in it mm. that, like, there's no way out. And it's, yeah. like, he's not... <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like... Yeah. So... I was just going to say something about the structure of the movie Mm. is I hadn't, I mean, I don't know. Apparently there's a thing about seven with the movie that it's seven days and nights. And I I didn't 
mark that on my own. At, mm. But I guess it's like a, it's it's structurally, if you look at it, it has seven nights. And, and a, I'm not going to do it. It's a any, Catholic thing. Probably. So I'm not going to make anything out of it <laughs> numerologically. But it it does have a very loose episodic structure. Yeah. And so what I remembered, what I what I thought I took came away from just organically watching mm. the movie with you again was like, oh, I think it's a series of nights, overnights. It's from, you know, daytime oh, okay. and see. overnight. And then and that's why I wanted to go off and make a list, but I had to kind of yeah. compare my list because I couldn't remember exactly what order things happen in. Yeah. But it is like there's this day and night and then there's this day and night and um, but I didn't come away with the fact that it's like supposed to take place in a week or, or it's seven days or anything. I don't really know that, except that people say it's seven days and nights. Well, the other thing that I noticed about the way that, and this is where I think it's starting to move into that more surrealist thing, is like early in the film, like there are more like clear transitions. Mm-hmm. And then as you get later in the film, like it becomes less clear, like, it just moves to the next scene. Like, there's no, like, sort of transition moment or, like, waking up or anything like that. It's, like, first, I think, it feels like, and I I don't know if this for sure, but this is how I felt, like, watching the first part of the film is, like, I felt like I pretty much knew where we were in time. Like, okay, today is the next day, you know, he's waking up. Yeah, you lose that that sort of thing. But at some point... I don't know if he's just out all the time, but also like the scenes, they, the way that they transition to another, it's just like one ends and the next begins like in the middle of what's going on instead of this sort of like waking up or, or entering a space or something like that. It's more of this, like, here we are now in this place, you know, here we are driving down the road to this weird guy's house in the country or something like that, you know, all of a sudden. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and I think that the transition is, you know, after what happens with Steiner, that it that it goes into a more sort of like wild, crazy, not as controlled narrative at that point, you know, which I mean, you know, suggests like a reaction to this tragic thing that happened is this sort of. Well, I think the craziness, I think the going off the edge happens even before mm. what ultimately happens with Steiner. And I think... Or the weird argument with them, I guess. So, one of the things going on in the movie is that he's this shitty journalist. And people yeah. will tell him that he's a shitty journalist yeah. several times throughout the movie. Well, you can tell he's a shitty journalist, too. Right? <laughs> He's like wrote, I don't think he's turned into column. He's, he's he stays out all night. He stays out all night partying. Yeah. Like observing, participating, yeah. going from club to club, drinking, um, hanging out with the actresses and the socialites and becoming ever more involved in it. Um so my so I think he's like one of those like mm. immersive journalists who yeah. like, you know, like a Rolling Stone, like, yeah. like uh, almost famous or something yeah. where you like, you participate <laughs> and you go along with it. And then we're not seeing the part where he like types up some shitty like it's 500. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, he wants to be a novelist and he wants mm. to be a serious writer. Mm. And so this surfaces a couple of times in the movie. It's like an internal conflict that he has. And I think it's around the midpoint where I think it's, it's after one of his first, it's after one of his, it might even be after the time he goes to his friend Steiner's home Mm -hmm. to the party at his home where he, he says, you know, I'd like to 
have a life like yours with the family and the children and and Steiner's like this is just a trap and like yeah. I, you can't live the life of the mind or be truly free or whatever it is he says yeah. um but like it's you then you have that like interlude where he goes to the seaside and he's um trying to work on his book because yeah. the implication is he's trying to like okay i'm finally going to work on my novel and he's tapping away at a typewriter in this like seaside little abandoned seaside restaurant midday mm. with the with the teenage girl angelic yeah. waitress the blonde umbrian angel yeah <laughs> paula who's just wants to listen to her radio and um you know and and they have that little exchange yeah. where she's like, what are you doing oh you're a writer and you know where are you from oh i'm from this little seaside town and i think he also came from a little I think town he comes like from that. the mountains i think yeah i know fellini came, actually came from a seaside town so i'm mm. probably yeah <laughs> interpolating or whatever um but it's kind of after this, like, thing where I think where it kind of all goes haywire. Yeah. Where the parties become really more weirdly intense. Yeah. Like, there's the that whole long night with the aristocrats in the castle. Yeah. With the ghosts mm-hmm. and all that. Um, oh, and there's the thing with his father. Yeah. The they... long night out with his father, I think, comes right after the, the trying to work on his book yeah. scene. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I'm rattling on and on trying to trying to find like what are the dividing lines here? Yeah, well, I mean, so we watched uh, the video essay that Koganada did where they talk about um, the camera work in the scene where he goes to Steiner's house and there's this he he's Koganada reads it as an implication that there's a separation between. Marcello the person and Marcello's like spirit or self or something like that that um there's a rapture that takes yeah. place there filmically and in terms mm-hmm. of the thematically because of the way that the camera like the camera is the point of view of Marcello but then there's a shift where Marcello comes into the scene in his own point of view shot in his own point of view shot yeah and that i guess continues throughout the scene with Steiner like when um He's in talking about how, you know, he's not able to live the life he wants to live because of, you know, his family and his his wife. You know, there's this sense that he's addressing the spirit of Marcello rather than, you know, the the physical form of of him. You know, so I think that there's like some implied dissociation there, you know, which is interesting. I think... Diner represents to him who he thinks he wants to be, yeah. who's like an intellectual mm-hmm. and like a man of ideas and spirituality mm-hmm. and family and all these things that he thinks should matter most yeah. to him and that he should value. And I think the first time we meet, the first time he encounters Steiner is when he visits him in the church mm-hmm. and they end up going up to the organ and playing the, like the Bach yeah. fugue or cantata or whatever the what is that called? It's that famous. Um, I don't know. But I think <laughs> in that scene, um, isn't Steiner kind of 
judging him in some like yeah. saying like you know you've kind of lost your i mean i mean the yeah. implication is you've kind of lost your way and you should do something more serious with your writing or yeah i don't know if they actually talk about his writing but the like the, there is kind of a like what are you doing you know yeah. reflect on who you want to actually be and what's you know that kind of thing so steiner's like his judge slash ideal or yeah. something he's a super ego <laughs> if we want to get uh, Freudian about yeah. this. <laughs> but, I mean, like, who? what ends up happening with his ideal? Yeah. I mean... Well, I mean, that's the, that's the thing is, like, I think there's a struggle here, like, does anything matter at all? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and... If nothing matters at all, is it important that I write this meaningful thing or should I just enjoy the life, the sweet life that we have while we have it? You know, so that's, I think, maybe the question that's being asked here. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but like, you can't really look at Marcello and say that he's enjoying this life he's leading. No. He seems stuck Mm -hmm. or lost in it. Yeah. And I feel like by the time you get to the end of the movie, it's this sort of point of no return kind of thing where he's completely off the deep end. I mean, that I, I, I guess I always block out how horrible that last party is yeah he's pretty terrible where he's really assaulting that woman yeah you know and like tar and feathering her basically Mm. like pouring liquor over her and like like stripping all the feathers out of the pillows Mm. and covering her in them and riding around on her back and like swilling breaking things in this guy they first of all they broke in he's the one who broke into the house house. yeah Yeah. he smashes the window breaks it this is the final party of the movie and like i guess i always forget I remember that he rides around on his women's back, but I, I guess I just forget like how horrible and degrading and awful it feels by the time you get there and like where he is. Yeah. How does he get there? Like, how do we get there? Well, they, he was driving out, they were driving out there, a bunch of them in, in cars speeding around the Italian countryside looking for this guy's house. You know, they, you said we could come here. But then I guess we have that last scene. So Paula is, I mean, our our last scene is her looking at him, you know, across a, yeah, like a an it, inlet of water or something like that. It's the last dawn mm. of the movie after this wild, it's supposed to be an orgy. I mean, they called it like the orgy scene. Yeah. I mean, like, I think the implication is like, there's more going on in that party yeah. than we see, but it's supposed <laughs> to be like, this was like one of the scenes that was so shocking, I think at the time mm. was, but it's when they all spill out, they, the guy finally kicks them out yeah. of the house and they all spill out onto the beach at dawn. And there's that weird, like sea, mon- they call it the sea monster. It's a, it's a sea, it's like a, big a ray. giant ray, it's dead a, ray thing that washes up on the, manta ray, yeah. yeah, on the beach and the, like it smells and it it's putrid, right? It's yeah. got these dead eyes staring mm-hmm. up. I mean, this is like heavy, kind of heavy handed, yeah. but it's also <laughs> a really great image. <laughs> and he's standing there with the, these last few stragglers. They're all, you know, drunk and hungover and standing there in the light of day, you know, his hair is disheveled. He's unshaven and and then he sees the the beautiful innocent 
adolescent waitress from the yeah. seaside village where he was working on his book from across the way she recognizes him and and tr- tries to get his attention and tries to like we don't know what she's trying to say it's one yeah. of those like lost in translation things mm. they they look at each other he doesn't get it she tries to repeat it he doesn't get it and then he ends up kind of like shrugs does it like whatever and then walks away with into debauchery for the end of his days or yeah. whatever. And then the, le- but the last shot of the film is the, the close up of the girl's face mm. waving to him. And yeah. then like Koganata points out, then she like looks straight at the camera. Yeah. And he also points out that, that, you know, maybe pulled directly from, you know, the French new wave, you know, cause they were highly influential on Fellini But I mean, like, to me, I think that she is, you know, a symbol of a simpler life. So not an intellectual life, not a, a life of excess, but a simple life, you know, living by the sea, enjoying nature, you know, living in yourself with, you know, living with yourself, maybe even. You also, know. like, there's something about the simple joy of her just hearing a song on the radio mm. that she likes and wanting yeah. to, like, sing along to it while she's at work, Yeah, you know? The poor girl is a symbol, though. Yes, she is. But... Is Emma a symbol? Well, I don't <laughs> poor know. Poor Emma. <laughs> I don't know, but I'd like to talk about some of the other yeah. people that he encounters. Because... Because they've given you, like, only seven segments or seven yeah. episodes, each one seems to, like, really means, like, why yeah. did they choose this? What is it about this particular night yeah. and this encounter that is, what, a turning point or a yeah. stage along the way to get from point A to point B where we yeah. leave him? So, we can talk about Emma. Do you want to... Uh, so, I mean, Emma is his fiance, I guess. She's the woman who lives they in live his to- house. They live together. They, I mean, they're sort of in a relationship. You know, they he stumbles home to her sometimes. They're in a relationship. She lives in. They live together. Yeah. He's never home. He's never like, home. He's out all night. Yeah, and and she's very. I mean, like, she's very dramatic, fiery temper, very emotional. I mean, like the first scene we see her, she's taking a bunch of pills. He has to take her to the doctor to get her stomach pumped. Um, I mean, and, and granted, he's like a complete jerk to her. Like, but sh- she, instead of like leaving him and realizing that he's an asshole, engages in these sort of dramatic things in order to get his attention. You know, so I mean, like, it's a really toxic, terrible relationship. <laughs> it's really hard to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because they're so bad for each other. Yeah. And then. So he's never there. He doesn't yeah. love her. He doesn't yeah. give her any attention. He, like, at one point, they were something. I mean, she mm. says they were. He says they were. And there's these little, very little moments of tenderness yeah. after some of the explosions. Yeah. But, like, it's over. But yeah. not. But he won't end it, and she won't end it. Yeah. They're, like, totally attached. She's totally attached to him. Yeah. And for... So... He's doing everything he can do, just be out and never home and yeah. away and like, like having these sort of, with, having actual affairs because he's yeah. got something going on with Madalena, the aristocrat, mm. the rich woman that he yeah. we encounter at several points throughout the movie. 
Three or four times, actually. Yeah. It'd be interesting to track what... So is she married? I'm not... I wasn't ever I clear on that. I don't think she's married. I think okay. she's like a... Like an older socialite Jacqueline or Onassis type okay. or something. Well, she but, definitely is that, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, she's <laughs> like a... She's like a... I, I don't think she's married. I think she's an older socialite, aristocrat. Mm. Her father, they talk about her yeah. father, is like, whatever. That's where the money comes yeah. from. You know, not employed professional <laughs> aristocrat, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> bored, existential ennui, yeah. nothing means anything. She has so much money, nothing matters, you know, looking for something to just kind of pinch her awake for an hour kind of thing. Oh, we have a nice cat battle going on <laughs> in the background battle. right now. Um, so, um, and so this is interesting. So she's the first sort of like in the first kind of opening night of the movie he goes to a club he meets her there and then they end up like they pick up a prostitute yeah and drive in her Rome. home yeah drive her way out in the outskirts somewhere where the new invite themselves are in for coffee yeah in her flooded apartment in her weird decrepit flooded basement apartment <laughs> yeah and then they just take over her bedroom for the night and then they have sex in her in the prostitute's house yeah while well, she's making them coffee and leave the next morning. It's not very polite. And they did pay her though. They paid <laughs> I mean, for her. her time <laughs> and her and and the room, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but I think like I mean, so it's like their life is so empty <laughs> that this is their activity for the night. I was, it's it's a very weird thing to do. That was like the weirdest. It's a very weird thing to do. Like, I think you turned to me and was like, "Well, that was romantic or something yeah, like that." <laughs> uh, it's I mean like. So they, they're so bored and over everything. They couldn't even be bothered to rent a nice hotel room. They want to drive to the country. It's exciting for them but, but to drive to the country and have... Was was the shitty prostitute. I yeah. mean, to get like... The, and, and she's not like... I mean, she's an older working woman. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's the end of the night. Yeah. And like, you know, she just wants to get off of... Get out of her shoes and go to bed. And yeah. this poor woman, they pick up and... She has to, I guess, sleep at the kitchen table until they're in the morning. Or, I, don't I don't know. But it's not even like... They didn't even have the debauchery of like... I don't know, like a threesome or something weird yeah. with the prostitute. It's just like for them, the, the charge was to like... Get together in the prostitute's crappy yeah. flooded house. That, that was something exciting. Yeah. Which, by the way, that's the morning that he goes back and finds Emma has, like, yeah. overdosed on the pills on and the he pills. has to take her to the hospital to get her stomach pumped. Yeah. It's, that's, I mean, that's it's a pretty bleak way to start things out, you know? I which mean, is like, why we deserve yeah. the, scene, the, the sequence with Sylvia yeah. Anita Eckberg next. Yeah. So tell me your thoughts on that whole segment. Oh, I mean, I guess that's that's the big iconic thing. It's on the poster. It's, you know, it's... Her in the fountain. You know, the thing that's interesting to me is, like, in my mind, this was, like, her, like, joyously dancing in the fountain. Yeah. I don't even think that that was there. I didn't quite get that sort of the graceful feeling of her joyfully playing in the fountain. It's, I don't know. It's just. She's interesting. Yeah. There is, to me, there is something childlike. Yeah. And. Spon- it's, she's supposed to be this figure of like spontaneity and passion or something like yeah. that, I think. Well, and I got more of that when she's dancing with the band in the That's scene a great prior. Scene. 
you know, there's a lot more joy and she's clearly enjoying herself. And, you know, meanwhile, she's got these like bored minders over, you know, drinking at the table in the... In that shitty American boyfriend. Yeah. (laughs) The actor, Robert. Yeah. Also, the thing that wasn't clear to me is like... They kept calling her an American actress, but they also said that she was Swedish, so that was confusing to me. She is Swedish. <laughs> she is Anita Swedish. Ekberg is and <laughs> Anita Ekberg is Swedish, but they're say but she was like a Hollywood star in okay. the movie who's over in Rome making a movie at Chinachita or something like that. Okay. So that requires an understanding of the differences in uh, filmmaking that well that people might not be aware what of now. You would know of at the time when you're seeing the movie and what I had to read about to find out about was really this time of like 1958, 1959s when Rome exploded as like this being this international cosmopolitan, like also center of filmmaking. Like, um, I think, uh, American film Hollywood kind of ramped down a little bit and, uh, Italian film exploded and mm. it, it and it was so big with like Cina Cheetah was one of like the world's biggest studios kind mm. of thing and you had Dino De Laurentiis who, mm. and um and and huge productions like the American productions like Ben Hur coming over mm. and shooting at Cina Cheetah so it was now this very international place where it was very normal for the you know the Paul Newmans and the whatever to come over to be in Italy filming Italian movies in Rome kind of thing. Okay. So I think that that's literally exploding right now at this time. So it makes sense that you have an American actress, a Swedish American <laughs> actress, actress. <laughs> overshooting a big movie in Hollywood. Okay. And so there's press conferences and paparazzi and all that sort of stuff going on. Okay. Yeah. Interestingly, they want. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis was the original producer mm. of the movie, and I think it got passed around because it was over budget and everybody and like he want, Fellini wanted his creative vision and like people didn't get it, whatever wanted it to be something else, <laughs> and they, uh, they wanted uh, Dino De Laurentiis. I think it was wanted Paul Newman to be the, oh, the character. I could see that. And Fellini was like, "No, he's too pretty and too. Yeah. He's a movie star. That doesn't make any sense. Like I don't <laughs> want it to be Paul Newman." Um, he had met Marcello Mastroianni. Through his wife, mm. who is Gioletta Messina, who is the star of Knights of Kiberia. Okay, yeah. Because um, they had been a, a, a project together uh, with Marcello Mastriani, and so they met through him, and he uh, thought Marcello looked like an everyman, kind of. I, mean, mm. I think he's very handsome everyman. He man, is very handsome. Especially when he's got his, like, shades on mm. and his suit and everything, but... Uh, but he's not a Paul Newman, like, boyishly handsome yeah. sort of thing. He's interesting. He's got kind of like a square face yeah. in a way. He's, he's an interesting looking fellow. I think he's really great with the sort of jaded, lost eyes kind yeah. of look. Yeah. Which he needs to have in both this and in Eight and a Half. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to me. So I'd never got that. I mean... I don't know. It's... It was hard to escape that sort of like that that sort of like bored over it feeling even in that that scene with I mean maybe you're able to sort of transcend that a little bit when um you know the water is falling over her you know you have the scene where she's like standing it's like like the camera's like nearly in the water you know and then the fountain turns off you know so <laughs> 
there's some symbolism there, you know. <laughs> so what I noticed this time, one of the things I noticed this time were these moments where Marcello seems to become aware mm. of wanting something more than he has. Yeah. And he either says it. Yeah. It's often with some of these women that yeah. he's with. And this is probably the first time is with Sylvia, Anita, the American actress. Yeah. Where, so he's so involved now. He's not just uh, tagging along on the on her tour of Rome and everything. Yeah, he's, he's actively actually, helping her evade photographers and stuff like he's that. Like her, he becomes like her yeah. minder sort of tour person. And like they dance together. They spend the evening together. They, When she needs to get away from her asshole boyfriend that's when they wander away through the alleys and she picks up the kitten and they end up in the trevi fountain all that kind of stuff but that's the first time where like in his broken english right because she doesn't really speak italian so it's kind of funny yeah like as he's saying stuff like you're everything you Mm -hmm. are all that i want you're all that i need and so like one of his first sort of wanting something is reading something in this woman that I think he's, I think he's getting like this sort of vibrant joy of life, sort of spontaneity thing from her. I'm not sure what it is, but he wants it. Yeah. Well, (laughs) he probably wants her too. Yeah. Well, and then the, you know, the, another, like bring it, the fountain turns off, but then another thing that brings us back to reality is when, you know, he takes her back to the hotel and they run into the boyfriend and, you know, up. he, yeah, he treats her just like, you know, Marcello treats Emma, you know, the mm-hmm. same sort of abusive, dismissive. He slaps her, dismissive. tells her to go up into the yeah. room. He also punches Marcello, which yeah. didn't deserve that oh, time. And, the, but and his maybe. friends, the paparazzi, are all around to snap pictures of him getting beaten up. So, you know, it's bad when he's yeah. starting to become the subject of yeah. the paparazzi photos. Yeah. By the way, we have to mention that. Paparazzo is the name of his mm. of the photographer he works with, and that's where the word paparazzi comes from. Yeah. from this movie <laughs> and the Lady Gaga song, ultimately. And I guess the <laughs> word paparazzo is similar to one of the Italian words for like a kind of whiny mosquito or something like Interesting. that. Interesting. So they think that etymologically that may be where it comes from too, but paparazzo. Yeah, is actually the na- the name of the character that he wor- the photographer that he works with. So I think one of the more disturbing, it's probably the most disturbing scene is the scene when they go out to the country to see the children who've seen the Madonna. Yeah, they they report to having seen the Madonna, and so there's and there's this th- like mass hysteria kind yeah. of thing with everybody coming to see the site of the the miracle yeah, they the bring, children who they saw bring sick the madonna people to the fields where the children saw it's it's a very odd thing so there's all these people gathered round but the children are in custody of the police i guess to protect him from the sort of fervor of the I religious so. faithful that are yeah. there um because like like you know there's like one scene after the children have been let go by the police and they're they're like pointing out the madonna's there and like the people like ripped down the leaves of all the trees and like they had somebody had to rescue the children because there were all these people like flocking to them trying Mm -hmm. to touch them and get their blessing and all this stuff like that is and and like i think i mean i do think that marcello gets that it's like tasteless for them to be covering this that it's just 
Like you he's know, on assignment. Yeah, yeah. Like this is what he does. <laughs> but he brought Emma, and Emma's like, "Why are you why covering? Did he bring Emma? Yeah, why are you covering this? This is awful. You should not be, you know, covering did, this." Did he tell her they were going there, or did he just bring her along and say, "We need to her. stop here"? I, and then I'm, he left her with some woman, like, yeah. while he's off standing on, like, I don't know. It's and so we know that the kids are just like mischievous and, mm-hmm. and making a whole game of the whole thing because they're like whispering to each other and then the girl were like she's over there yeah. madonna's over there and then this like wild trampling crowd goes off in that direction and they don't realize how dangerous and it's it is. pouring there's like a thunderstorm and mm-hmm. it's raining and the lights are popping the tv mm-hmm. lights are popping and, yeah. and and everything's getting shut down it's just an awful yeah. mess so it's it's and somebody dies yeah, one of the sick people. I don't know if they got trampled or if they just died from exposure. So or... it's funny because I I didn't quite get it from the movie, so I don't know yeah. what's some just somebody's interpretation. But the article I read said that um, it was a, a sick child. That I thought I didn't see and that I didn't it was a see child. it as a child, but that the person was trampled. Okay, well at, I could see at that. The event yeah, that because there's that sort of like frenzy of. Of people after, you know... It ends at dawn with the last rites and the, like, you know, yeah. the priest and the this person who's been killed, you know. So it's... And the crowd still kind of there and just starting to slink away. Well, you know, and if he was a good journalist, I mean, like, I mean, like, well, maybe he wouldn't have been there at all, but he could have written something, you know, meaningful <laughs> about that, you know, about the nature of humanity and I don't know, but... Um, that was it's a that's one of the bleaker scenes in it because like from the very beginning it you know Emma and and everybody kind of senses like why are we even here this is like you know this is tasteless for us to be covering this you know but religious I don't think he covered it in any yeah. sort of critical way yeah. he probably just covered it as yeah as it was in like as I don't know we see it as this horrible. Yeah. pretty modern media circus kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, like, yeah, if just by the media being there, they made it more of a dramatic situation than it could have been. Like, it could have been handled by the local police and the local priests, and, like, they could have calmed everyone down, and, like, there are ways to deal with this so that people don't get... But, you know, you bring the media attention to it, and all of a sudden it gets reported elsewhere. You have larger crowds, you know, instead of... I mean, like, not only is it tasteless from, like, a sociocultural sort of thing, but it's also dangerous for the people there and the children to have this eye on them. You know, it makes it, it gives it, you know, an eye, uh, a sense of being more true than it would have been. You know, like, maybe the priest would have been like, you didn't really see the Madonna kids and, you know... (laughs) But, um, yeah, that scene is, is pretty intense. You know, it's... Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting because it's a different commentary than we're seeing on the rest of the... They're commenta- he's commenting on something different there or something. Yeah, that actually seems to be a commentary of what plays out there yeah. rather than being about Marcello. Yeah. Except that he's complicit because he's... Yeah. Reporting on it. Also, he's just not very nice to Emma. Okay, so this is where I tell you <laughs> that supposedly 
Fellini didn't have a script. Okay, interesting, yeah. So I think Vim Vendors actually also works like this, but mm. like he has a sense of what he's doing, but they often don't know exactly what they're shooting or what the dialogue is up to the day. I mean, yeah. obviously, Fellini knows enough that he's built sets and they have locations and they they he probably has a general idea of what's playing out, but like uh, he's writing dialogue on and handing it to them the day of the shoot and saying, oh, if you don't like it, then, you know, let's change it or whatever. Yeah. But he's kind of making it up as he goes. But to me, that's, I don't know if that's exaggerated or if that's part of his own, like, let me make this myth about me being this crazy creative genius or something like that. Yeah. But it's an extraordinary film if that's true, that this is sort of made <laughs> like offhand like that. Yeah, that would require a lot of um, preparing for that scene. Would but Anita a lot. Ekberg, who plays yeah. Sylvia, the the Swedish American yeah. actress, <laughs> complained because she wanted to. Well, when he wanted to hire her, because she actually he actually saw her promoting a movie yeah. in Rome and was like, "Oh my god, I need to put her in the movie." Basically, playing yeah. herself promoting one of her movies. Um, she wanted to see the script, like what's the part and all yeah. that. And he had nothing to show her. She's like, is he even a director? Like, he, what am I? I'm, he's like, oh, you just will make up your own lines and stuff like that. She did not get that at all. Somehow he convinced her to do it. And she loves, she went on to love being an iconic figure yeah. in this movie. She thinks the movie is her and all that kind of thing. But um, it was a problem sometimes in him trying to get people to collaborate with him that he didn't, he wasn't able to show like a coherent plan which is funny because that's what eight and a half is about yeah it's like how do you make a movie when you're like when you have nothing you know and everybody needs something from you well it's just interesting because the rest of the scenes the excess is an excess of wealth mm -hmm. that is the problem but this is different it's an excess of religious fervor Mm -hmm. You know, so I mean, it is, I mean, like, if we're sticking on the trend of excess, then it's yes. Excess. But I mean, like, I wonder if, like, we're contrasting this to the scene where he's in the church with Steiner and they're able to play this music and he's inspired by the spirituality and intellectualism of this man. But then we see a contrasting scene of where spirituality can lead you in very dark directions. I don't know if that's also. His entire misreading of Steiner yeah. as being somehow spiritually content or like having found something. Yeah. Because Steiner has nothing. Yeah. Well, Steiner can't appreciate, Steiner has the same disease. He can't appreciate what he does have, you know. Nobody wants what they have. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody wants something else. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting what you're saying about it being a completely different type of excess mm -hmm. like it's the movie's saying something different in that sequence yeah well is it about all of the false gods you know that there because you know there's the false god of this yeah that's fake true. religious fervor and there's the false god of of wealth and of privilege and... wealth privilege and endless partying on the mm -hmm. via Veneto. yeah i and, always feel like there's i mean because, you know, I didn't grow up with any type of religion, but I specifically didn't grow up with a, an innate understanding of th Catholicism. But, like, those people who did, like, it's very evident in their work how it impacts them. 
you know, but I don't always understand that on an instinctive level because I don't have that background, you know, yeah. so, but, um, I don't know. I, I probably talked about this before, but there's an Italian sculptor who does these very disturbing sculptures with like taxidermied horses and, you know, and like with like the Inri, you know, from the, from mm -hmm. the, the crucifixion. crucifixion on, you know, on the horse and, um, you know, it, it's, it's impactful and interesting, but it's not something that I understand on that, you know, yeah. that gut level compared to people who do, grew, who grew up in the faith and understand all the symbolism and everything like that, you know, so there's probably a lot that we're missing here just because, you know, probably growing up in a small seaside town, the church was very much a part of Fellini's life growing up, and so probably that suffused throughout the, you know, and probably there's a lot of symbolism in the stripping of the tree and all of that that I don't, you know, quite well, pick up. Well, the tree at, is literally yeah. the tree where the kids saw the Madonna. Oh, for And it's the first this time. little shitty Charlie Brown tree yeah. that they all tear up. Tear up, yeah. You have to take a piece of it away. Well, I mean, it's interesting, too, like in the context of this being said in Rome is the the sort of concept of the Roman gods and like Dionysus, which Dionysus is the mm -hmm. uh, Greek name. I forget what the, what the Roman name is. Bacchus. Bacchus yeah. yeah. And the Bacchnals where, mm -hmm. you know, there's this sort of frenzy of like, what? and like, and that's sort of a theme throughout the whole thing is this sort of sense of like, you know, praying to the God of, of wine and, and women. And I think that's what these yeah. are. These yeah. like Dionysian knights, these Bacchanals. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, especially the, like, the one in the castle, and the last one is this sort of, like, and there's this, this idea of, in the frenzy, you don't know what happens, so it's, there's dancing and singing and, and drinking, but then there's also, like, violence and, and death, and, you know, all sorts of things can happen from the Bachnol, because you're not aware, you've lost yourself in this celebration of of wine and mm -hmm. excess and stuff like that and i don't know your community it's it's interesting there's there's like a darkness associated with like the the bacchanal you know thing that is different than many of the other sort of like celebration of gods in the roman pantheon you know what does Fellini think he's doing yeah. in this movie? <laughs> is he trying to tell the story of this individual, or is he trying to, like, savagely criticize all of contemporary mm -hmm. Italian life? Or is it, like, a why-not-both kind of situation? I, I mean, I think it's both. I also think that his films, at least the ones that I've seen, are very personal, too. You know, they're very much from his point of view, especially Eight and a Half. I think this film is similar you know, that that he is the point of view character, you know. And maybe that's what happens in The Separation is that we have, you know, Marcello the character and then we have the point of view of the director, you know, in that separation. Well, I read an interview with him this morning and a, mm. Fellini does give very straight interviews. <laughs> like no. he's kind of flippant and playful, you know, yeah. so it's kind of, you have to kind of, what can you get out of <laughs> asking him a question? But... It's interesting that he said that his that what he what he wanted to tell a story about was this conflict between um, 
being an artist and being a hack and yeah. the being a shitty tabloid journalist versus being a, an artist and a writer. And that's there, mm-hmm. but it's part of this it, much, it gets lost almost th- in this whole other. I think it's far more view. buried under the other symbols. I think that may have been other. the starting place, but yeah. obviously snowballed into like, yeah. <laughs> and he's always that way. His films yeah. are often talked about as being ex excess. Yeah. And a lot of the criticism of his later movies, Satyricon and and stuff like that, uh, is that he's gone (laughs) way too far into making kind of grotesque, caricatured, outlandishly exaggerated, increasingly artificial Mm. and superficial movies about excess that are excessive, you know? And then you lose the sense of having an individual or a personal film at the heart of it anymore. Yeah. It's kind of like, I don't know. Like that's these film, these couple of films in this period are like the ones are like the height of his gift. And then something goes off at yeah. some point. It's interesting to see, you know, directors with long careers, like how they change over time. Like if you look at someone like Robert Altman, yeah. Uh, I mean, who had like a weird, weird career, but like his best films are very good at like tying into the sort of personal understanding, emotional core of things, you know. I don't know. I, it's funny, you know, because there's some directors who I feel like they're always making, remaking the same movie over and over again. I don't think Fellini was doing no, that. No, no. I'm not saying he is. I've just like. You know, some people are so afraid of doing the same thing mm-hmm. that they try too hard to move away from, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I don't know if you know that Fellini started out as a cartoonist and a caricaturist. I see that, yeah. You know, like the kind who would do like exaggerated like things for the newspaper, mm-hmm. you know, like political cartoons or just weird cartoony kind of things. And it's like that comes out much more later when when he becomes obsessed with like casting like kind of weird looking people mm-hmm. like he becomes more and more he wants to fill the frame with extras who are, are like you know not deformed but who yeah. just look unusual who look mm. it's really strange you know like and it becomes much more about the artifice yeah. i mean it's always it's kind of always about the artifice but it becomes more and more so even in this movie which still is more tied to like a real world. Yeah, yeah. And can you can see how it comes out of his earlier films like Night of, Nights of Kaviria, which is yeah. more of a neorealist movie about this prostitute. Um, like he built like so much in Cinecita mm-hmm. that like he built his, the Via Veneto yeah. with the sidewalk cafes yeah. and the cars so that he could have absolute control over shooting and, and that environment. And like... Like he does that more and more and more till the till like his later films, he's completely in the studio and he's building entire villages and seasides and yeah. like you know schooner ships and you know, and making it snow on the stage and all like it's completely not in the world anymore. We're still kind of in Rome, but but it's more of a mix. Like I I had to look it up, but I for some reason thought that he built a Trevi fountain in Cinecita, but they did actually shoot that at that Trevi yeah. fountain. That's interesting. 
Because, I don't know, I always think of, um, I, I guess there's many ways that you can develop as an artist, but, like, my dad, you know, when he wrote his first album years ago, he wrote this really complex mandolin song. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, like, you have to be a young man to play it. It's so fast mm-hmm. and, and so complex. Mm-hmm. And, like, and like he would all, often talk about, like, that for him that was, like, a... F- it's his virtuoso like, as, moment. As yeah. a young person, like, he felt like he needed to cram all the tricks into one thing. Uh-huh. And then over time he learned that you can make something beautiful and say something mm-hmm. beautiful with simplicity but it's Mm -hmm. interesting to have someone sort of move the opposite go from neorealism which is you know showing you what is to this sort of over-the-top surrealism you know which is trying to show you what is by well i think it's a control thing too (laughs) because it's like i know exactly what Mm -hmm. i see in my mind and i'm going to build it yeah. And we're going to paint it, and we're going to construct it, and I'm going to cast it. And if the weather's not right, that's never going to foil my shoot again. Yeah. You know, it's like I have absolute control this way. But his movies go on forever. Like, they go over budget, and they take forever, and he builds these giant city-like sets and yeah. stuff like that. Like, it gets really crazy. <laughs> it kind of reminds me at work when, like, somebody does it's something. It's like Terry Gilliam. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Yeah. It's exactly like that. And Terry Gilliam loves Fellini. He's huge and hugely influential. Yeah, he definitely is. Eight and a Half is one of his favorite films. He says he watches it before he he shows it to his crew and watches it before he makes any movie. My God, that guy is the character in Eight and a Half. (laughs) He is doing the same thing. (laughs) Just... It reminds me, like, you know, if you're in a situation where somebody does something that you don't like, you can either address that person and say, hey, stop doing the thing we don't like. Or you can do what we have done in my place of work, which is write a pages long document explaining why no one should do that one thing ever again, instead of just dealing with the problem head on, you know, so instead of just like, you know, sometimes you have to deal with rain, you know, now we have to build a million dollar set inside of a I'm going to build, like, a section of, like, the Colosseum or something like that. Yeah. You know? All of that. I don't... I do like... I like a few of the movies that he made after Eight and a Half. I like Juliet of the Spirits. I liked Amor, I like Amarcord a lot, which is a very... It's, it's very studio-bound, but it's a very personal film with all of his memories of growing up in his little seaside village. Mm. It's also very episodic. It doesn't have, like, a three-act structure or anything. Yeah. It's all little vignettes, and it's a, a an ensemble cast kind mm. of thing. But it still feels like a personal film, even though it's very artificial-looking. Yeah. But it's like, I'm going to build my town I grew up in, the mm. idealized version of it, in the studio. And it's going to snow where I want it to be, and the light's going to be just the right quality that I want it to be. And, you know, the church is going to be right over there where it should be. And, you know, all That's of that kind of like Playtime, which was like a complete uh, set. Yeah, he built that yeah. part of the city. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad we watched that. Yeah, that was good. So, I, I don't know. It's interesting to me that this is such a... I mean, like, there's sometimes when I watch a film... Like, I can see why it's important, but I don't understand... Well, maybe... I I see why Fellini is important. I don't know why this particular film is. Mm. 
I mean, like, if you compare it to something like Breathless, like, when you watch Breathless, you immediately know how important and wonderful it mm-hmm. is. This is so dark and so... I mean, and if you compare it to other Italian films that I've seen, which, like, even, like... I mean, and maybe this is an unfair comparison, but Umberto D and Bicycle Thieves have this sense of, like, joy and lightness and life about them, despite the fact that they're actually about some pretty depressing subjects. I don't know if I ever got that sense from this film. It just Does this film feel relentless or something? Yeah, or, like, so bleak that yeah. there's... I mean, I liked Eight and a Half better. Yeah. I will say that. Okay. I, I really enjoyed Eight and a Half. Um... That's the masterpiece for yeah, me. Eight and yeah. a half is like the <laughs> film, and it's probably on my top ten list. Yeah. If I actually made a top ten list. But I mean, like, I guess I had this idea in my mind that it was supposed to be this like like romantic ideal of what Rome in the sixties should be, but like No, I it think... doesn't feel I mean, like, I never got that sense of like and you know, I love I love anything said in the like post war is my jam, you know. I'm I love the but I don't see any of that optimism and maybe that's because No, it's not an optimistic film. Yeah, film. there's there's not I mean and like I don't think everything has to be optimistic in order to be enjoyable, but this one was kind of uh, uh, really depressing to watch in a way, you know. It's just and it was um condemned by the Catholic Church. And it was a vision of depravity and all of this kind of stuff. I'm not as worried about that. Yeah, but I think that a lot, I think that if people, like, kind of, you know, mention Anita Ekberg and the Fountain and the Via Veneto and and some, like, the life of Rome at the time, like, maybe they haven't actually seen the movie. Yeah, yeah. And it's their ideal, their idealism or what they think the movie is. Because that's not what the movie actually is. It's got that sequence. It doesn't mean what you think it does. Yeah. And we go somewhere way darker. It is a descent into hell. Yeah. I think I saw, trolling around and reading Mm. stuff, somebody called it, I don't know, it was just, like, a random post (laughs) somewhere. (laughs) Uh, is it's really kind of a, a reverse Dante's Inferno or like a yeah. divine comedy. Yeah. You know, it's like starting somewhere, not in paradise, but yeah. it's like a descent. Like yeah. he's going into an ever increasingly darker point of no return into yeah. this kind of immersive, immersed in the the life that he, that it seems like he wants to get out of. Yeah. It seems that he wants, like he wants to be more. He wants yeah. to, he wants whatever Paula the the waitress symbolizes. Yeah. Whatever Steiner symbolizes. Yeah. We didn't even say what happens with Steiner. Yeah, that's I mean like cuz that's like the sort of like darkest point of the of the thing. Sometimes I forget that that's going to happen. Yeah. Like I knew like I knew it was coming. I just didn't know when it fell in the movie. So he while his wife is away, he kills himself and does he kill the children or he kills his kids. Yeah. And then shoots himself. Yeah. The the one who Marcello thinks has figured yeah. it out, you know, and is living is, is has reached the balance or the sort of yeah. thing that he wants. Yeah. You know, he's his intellectual ideal. He thinks he's a man who is a a writer or an intellectual and 
has a family and is not caught in this like fake false world of like parties and excess. Well, and then they have that horrible scene where they go to meet the woman at the bus That is like the worst, really hard to see. And like she gets off the bus and the paparazzi, I mean, the, the photographers are already there and they surround her and she doesn't know what's going on, you know? No, they're going to, they have, they're, it, it's Marcello with the police detective yeah. have to tell her what just happened yeah. with that her her husband and kids are dead. Yeah. And she's all she knows is she's being accosted by half a dozen paparazzi. Yeah. And she's like she she's laughing and thinks they've mistaken her for, for a, a celebrity star. like yeah. Sylvia or something like that. And they're there to take That's pictures so of her awful. the moment yeah. that they tell her that there's been a murder And they can't get her to get in the car, you know, um, without telling her, you know, a little yeah. something. It's it's pretty dark. And then that's what leads to the next scene where I think he, he has the, like, terrible, abusive, orgy, you know, scene. Or he also has a... There's also, like, a terrible argument with uh, Emma in the... When Steiner's um, murder-suicide is... comes right after the the thing on the road with Emma where yeah. the, he kicks her out of the car yeah. and all that stuff. and then stuff. he comes back for later. So it's the penultimate thing yeah. before the horrible, abusive uh, yeah. all-night party where they break into the house. Yeah. So it comes after the sequence with his father visiting. Yeah. And the earlier... Uh, the aristocrats in the castle yeah. with the ghosts and the weird echo chamber scene where yeah Madal- where he's looking for the Madalena mm. the the one he spent the night with at yeah. the prostitute's house before <laughs> shows turns up again and she's in this group that they're having the party with and she takes him off to puts him in the weird echo chamber room and then goes off and, and he's like starts confessing like that's another moment yeah. where he's like uh, I think he's like in, he loves her, or he yeah. thinks he does in that moment. He doesn't know. No. <laughs> He's grasping. He yeah. wants something other. He wants to be saved. Yeah. He has mo- glimmers of moments mm. where he seems to want a way out, but they always go off track. Yeah. And then he always l- lets himself be pulled back in or even goes seeking to be pulled yeah. back in how old do you think he is late 40s or something mid 40s okay mid 40s okay mid 40s yeah i was just wondering so he would say how old his dad is i was just wondering like in in the context of the film like would he have been a soldier probably oh i don't even you know, know. So i don't this know this is 1960 and he's He's probably at least 40. And I don't know if I'm over-exaggerating his age or underestimating mm. his age. I don't know how old Marcello Mastriani actually was in 1960. Yeah, but if he was 35 even, he would have been old enough to yeah. serve. I don't know. It's, Maybe he's not even 40. I have no I idea. I don't know. I just feel like that a lot of... I mean, like, there... You know, we talk a lot about, like, trauma and, like, how it changes things. And, like, when you have a big traumatic thing like a pandemic or a war you know that completely changes society like you know people have different ways of dealing with that trauma and you know mm-hmm. how it how it, it it completely 
you know, when you don't have a, you know, he doesn't have a real purpose, you know, so he, he's looking for, for something to mm-hmm. save him, you know, and yeah, he needs a purpose. Yeah, and he does not find it. He does not find it in this film, yeah. So, he should make art. That's what uh, Jerry Saltz says. He should, make which is art. why I think the scene with Paula is supposed to be so important. It's like mm-hmm. kind of at the midway, at the yeah. midpoint in the movie. And it's like, this is, this could be you. This will save your life, This yeah. could be you. And also, I think you're right. I think he also identifies with her because he was her. He was someone from a small town who came yeah. to, to Rome. This I don't think that I, th- I don't think this is in Rome. I think it's yeah. probably on the outskirts somewhere yeah. on the seaside. But um, I don't know. Well, I just I didn't even I mean, like, it just never occurred to me how I mean, like, ironic even the title of the film is like it, oh, it never, yeah. never Absolutely. occurred to me that that was that was the thing. And like. And also because um, there's a film that came out, which I haven't seen. We're going to watch it sometime, The Great Beauty, which is supposed to be like, you know, multiple years later, sort of like what's going on with that same set of, I mean, it's not not a continuation, but it's set in Italy. It's. Do you know when this film was made? Um. Early See, early aughts or something oh, like 2000s? that. Yeah, okay. it's it's a modern, it's a contemporary film. So it's a movie that's sort of aware of La Dolce Vita. And yeah, somebody it's sort of the same kind of people, the same sort of aristocratic set mm-hmm. of, you know, um, and what that looks like. You know, when you're, I don't know, I don't know, I I don't even think, I mean, it probably pulls on it, but it's it's not the same. But I always got the sense that. That what are the results of the excesses, Mm -hmm. you know, but I thought that the excesses would be more, I didn't think that it would be so hollow to start with. So I don't know where we're going to end up, you know, (laughs) 40 years later or whatever, you know. Yeah. So I don't know, for me, (laughs) no matter what we've been through by the time we get through to the end of the movie, to me... It's kind of devastating to me when yeah. he sees Paola at the end mm-hmm. of the movie. I'm not sure how you read exactly what's going on between them, but what I was getting, what I thought was happening, was that she recognizes him and is trying to say, like, remember me at the place, and you were typing, and yeah. you were the writer, and I was the waitress, and I was dancing, and <laughs> yeah. she's kind of gesturing, right, because they're yeah. at a distance. And I don't think he ever really recognizes hers. Oh, okay. But I'm not sure if that's true or if that's what you got. I don't know if he's just like, I can't hear what you're saying. I don't know yeah. what you're trying to say. But I actually kind of got this time that maybe he didn't even recognize who she was. Yeah. And that she recognized him. Or maybe he doesn't recognize the person she thinks he is. Or something like that. Maybe you so. Know? Um, yeah, so know. it's 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 interesting... And I guess I know, I mean, like, I know it was largely very influential on the, you know, our, our big directors like Scorsese and, and Spielberg and, you know, those those guys that came up in the 70s. So And Robert Altman and all and those Altman, guys. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like, I can see that, but, um, I mean, especially Martin Scorsese, because he likes to tell those films that are, you know, have those films that are sort of bleak and... And about you know, access, about access, yeah. people who've lost their way, <laughs> yeah. 
So, I mean, like, I can see, but, like, I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> it. I think it's, you're trying it's to say different than I expected. I think you're trying to say you appreciate it and you're glad you saw it, but it didn't. It maybe leaves you cold or something. Yeah. it's not. It's not. I don't know why I was for expect, you. I was expecting something. I don't know why. Like something like singing in the rain. Oddly, I don't oh. know why. Now I but feel like well, I don't usually the, prepare you for what we're gonna yeah. watch, so. I don't know, maybe I should. Well, I mean, but yeah, I mean, like, if you, like, if the scenes that I'm familiar with then is the name of the film, yeah. the idea of the time period that it's set in, and then the scene with the fountain is all I'm familiar with, then that's going to be a different... No, I mean, the, the title is <laughs> definitely ironic, and people yeah. kind of do quotes, yeah. like, The Sweet Life, yeah. you know, like, that's, <laughs> this is, this is bleak excess. But now, I, and I was thinking about this, I really want a uh, trailer cut that's a combination of La Dolce Vita with Zach and Cody. <laughs> oh, La Dolce Vita of Zach and Cody? <laughs> with Zach and Cody. I, you know, I think uh, Cole Sprouse would enjoy playing that uh, role nowadays. <laughs> yeah. He seems like he's into the uh, the hollowness of celebrity and that sort of thing. It's so. true. Yeah. The world needs a Riverdale uh, La Dolce Vita mashup. <laughs> I don't think the world needs that. Just you? you, you I want, don't need you that. Need I just that? want the trailer mashup. <laughs> you want the Saturday Night Live sketch. No, you just <laughs> want the trailer. <laughs> I'm surprised SNL hasn't done that. But, well, who uh, knows? It's been endlessly referenced in yeah. some, one way or another. But anyway, <laughs> you, you had to see it. Yeah. It counts as a blind spot. Yeah. I still think it's a great Fellini film. Does it make you feel good? No, <laughs> but I do. You know, it's like interesting. It. It's um, reminds me of Rosemary's Baby in a way too. I don't hmm. know quite how to explain that, but it does. There's something about it. Yeah. There is something about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a great film. Yeah. I do respond to it. I think it's powerful in its way, but you know, some bleak movies are powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say? No, about, I think uh, that's, that's it. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to be surprised by I'm gonna, something sometimes, you know, cause well, this was not what I was expecting. Well, I, I didn't think intend it's... to like pull the rug out from under <laughs> yeah. you. I didn't know you were coming into it with totally different Well, no, I mean, I didn't tell you that I had any of those expectations. I just, <clears throat> um, made an assumption based on the amount of information that I had that proved to be yeah. incorrect. But I mean, like it wasn't, you know, look at this great conversation that we had out of this, yeah. that, um, you know, would not maybe, you know, be the same if it was what I had pictured in my brain. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Well, I'll I'll try and pick a more hopeful humanistic <laughs> film next time maybe, but uh yeah, no, you needed to see this. Yeah. You still need to see La Strada too. I think that you watched some of it with me and and it was one of those rare times where you fell asleep, which doesn't happen very well, often. Also, okay, I will say this is what the thing that makes it hard to watch is that these are the kinds of questions and thoughts that I have about life. And sometimes you don't want to watch something that tells you 
So this isn't a very good yeah. escapist movie yeah, for you. Yeah, it's not an escapist film for me. Um, you know, it's it's like, you know... Thank you for giving me confirmation that everything is bleak and meaningless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. That's, I mean, like, I like the acknowledgement that those that people in the world are having those same sorts of questions. I appreciate that other people feel that way about things. It's why when I discovered Mark Marin and he talks about the bleakness in his soul all the time, like that was a revelation to me because I did not know that other people thought that way. And yeah. it turned out lots of people. Especially Mark Marin. No, <laughs> especially <kidding>. Mark Marin. <laughs> um, think that way. <laughs> um, but like some, some, there's some magical creators and Night Vale, the writers of Night Vale are some of them that are able to like face those, like the sense of the meaninglessness of things and the ununderstandability of time and space. But in a space. way that you don't feel alone. You don't feel alone. You feel like you're one of the weird people, you know, so there are certain people who are able to take that and acknowledge that that sort of thing exists but not let it feel like it's going to destroy you that there's despite this you know the you know the rage against the dying of the light the that the the beautiful struggle that is the important thing you know (laughs) I don't know I mean for me I don't identify with much of anything that's going on actually yeah. in this movie so to me i read it as it's marcello's descent it's not yeah. my descent yeah. i don't like i don't feel it in that same yeah. way i guess well i mean i just think as like of the the commentary on the society as a whole yeah. you know and like i mean like i understand that i'm separate from the society that i live in but only like in that i'm an individual being that can make my own decisions and choices but I'm also, like, of that, you know, so it's hard not to, like, you know, if the commentary on the Western world and the Western society is that it's, you know, founded on excess, that it's ultimately meaningless, that, you know, that's kind of, that's painful to contemplate, you know, because it doesn't focus on any of the, it's not looking at at what it's it's looking at the wrong things. I think John Green mm-hmm. says this all the thing. Like you can focus on the terrible negativeness, mm-hmm. but like what's the point in doing that? Cuz the terrible stuff is going to exist whether you focus exclusively on that mm-hmm. or whether you focus on your It's your choice of where to put yeah, your attention. To put your attention. So, I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, like it's important to acknowledge, but I also think that there is a necessity for hopeful things and mm-hmm. like it's important for me to see both sometimes but you know i'm gonna choose like to watch things that you know make me take action and mm-hmm. and make me feel like there's a purpose and mm-hmm. and like i can do something you know rather than you know i'm going to enjoy myself until you know, until the world rots or something, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Right on. Yeah. (laughs) I don't really have anything to add to that. Sorry. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I enjoy talking uh, about this with you. (laughs) uh, Wax philosophical sometimes. So, or all the time. 
All right. Well, thanks for uh, taking my challenge of watching yeah. and talking about uh, La Dolce Vita <laughs> with me this week. And guess what? You get to choose what you want next That's time. Right. That's right. So uh, come back to us next month. Yes. For an all new episode. And mm-hmm. it'll be Ashley's choice. Yeah. We don't know what it is. Yeah. Maybe it won't be as bleak. Probably will not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next History time. History of violence. No. <laughs> no, let's not. Unless you want to. No, it's <laughs> Bye. Okay. Beagle.